Morning, everybody. Welcome to uh, week two now of our series out of Mark's gospel account called The Way of Jesus. So the idea behind this series, uh, I'll just kind of briefly recap the series intro from last week, is we are living in a, um, a society that believes something that really is a new idea in terms of uh, humanity's story in general, um, which is that uh, truth is relative. And so everybody sort of gets to decide what the truth is for themselves and create truth for themselves. And regardless of what you think of that idea, um, without even realizing it, we all have a tendency to do that with God. I mean, to various uh, degrees and in various ways, we all have a tendency, especially when we approach Jesus, to try to decide for ourselves who he is and what he's like and edit out the parts of him that we don't like and what we're left is a, with Uh, is a Jesus that we've created in our own image. Now, the nice part of doing that, we talked about last week, is that a Jesus that you create will never challenge you. Uh, The bad part is that that Jesus will also never transform you because he's not real. He's just a projection of you and me. And so what we need more than anything else, if we want to be transformed by Jesus the way the Word of God says we can be and the way men and women have been for the last 2,000 years, what we need more than anything else is the real Jesus, and that's exactly what you find in Mark's gospel account. So uh, last week, we, um, we were in the, the opening eight verses of the gospel, and it sort of talked a lot about Jesus. Uh, this week, however, Jesus makes his first appearance. And when he does, you'll see that he's not alone. He is uh, alongside the other members of the, of the Trinity. That's God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> But before we read the verses that we're going to be spending time in this morning, I wanted to offer you a thought that's going to set the tone for our time together. So I imagine uh, it happens at different ages for different children, but eventually every child asks the question, if only to themselves, I'm just going to leave you there for a moment and let you wonder where I'm going with this. Every child eventually asks the question, what were my parents doing before I came along? You know, what were their lives like before me? Uh, what did they do? Who were they? What made them who they are? <clears throat> when I was putting this together, I, was, I remember what might have been the first time in my life I really started to think like that. Because obviously when you're born, you don't really have an understanding of anything. And, you know, as a toddler, you certainly don't have a good grip on time yet. And I think we all just kind of intuitively assume the world started when we started. But then... You age and you start to get a sense of time and you realize that things happened before you happened and you start to wonder, well, what what were my parents like before then? And not only is that that a a natural question to ask, I think it's a really important one because um, understanding who our parents are in a lot of ways helps us understand who we are. So with that idea in mind, in a similar way, it's also... A very important thing at some point in our lives to begin wrestling with the question, what was God doing before I came along? Scripture says that God existed in an eternity, which for whatever reason, I get something that doesn't end. I I can't get something that doesn't begin, but that's the God of the Bible. So God was here infinitely before you and I were. He was here infinitely before Adam and Eve were. He was infinitely here before anything was, and, and so therefore, he had a lot of time to kill. So the question is, what was he doing? What was his life like before us? Really what I'm asking is, who is he? Today I want to answer that question as best I can because the answer to that question unlocks the mystery of why you and I are here and how you and I 
are meant to live. And the reason for that is because if it's true that the God of the Bible is the author of all reality, and that God has designed you and I in his image, which I, of course, believe is a Christian pastor, if that's true, that we've been made in God's image, what that means is that if, if we have any desire to answer any of the big questions of life, like, who am I? Why am I here? How am I meant to live? What does it mean to live in a way that's congruent with my design The only way we're going to find the answers to that question is by understanding the nature of the life of the God who created us. And I'm going to try to answer that in about 30 minutes. Aren't you glad you're not a pastor? So we're in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. Let me read those verses to you. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending to him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, I take delight in you. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels began to serve him. This is God's word. So when you survey scripture from Genesis to Revelation, there really are not many passages that give you and I a behind-the-scenes look into how the persons of the Trinity relate to one another. But what we're studying this morning is one of the few passages that give us exactly that. So you could talk about baptism, you could talk about temptation, you could pull a number of themes out of this passage. But what we're going to do today, I want to look at what this passage shows us about the dynamics uh, inside the Trinity, meaning how God relates within himself And then what that implies about why you and I are here and how you and I are made to live. Uh, So with that, let's first off look at how the three persons of the Trinity relate to one another. Uh, This kind of move of the teaching is basically going to serve as the foundation for this teaching. It's found in verses 10 and 11. It says, as soon as he, being Jesus, came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending to him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven you are my beloved son, I take delight in you. So the summary statement here is that Mark, in the way that he describes the scene, he's trying to get his readers to draw a, par- a-, a parallel between this account and the creation account in Genesis. Now, he- here's how we know that. Instead of just saying that, let me briefly try to walk you through that. Because that's the first thing that would, p- would have popped in the mind of the original readers of Mark's gospel. And here's how we know. You notice that Mark, in, in-, in those verses, he likens the Holy Spirit to a dove. That did not sound strange to you and I because a dove is a very common religious symbol. Uh, It's found on T-shirts and bumper stickers and websites and and church bulletins and all that kind of stuff. But in Mark's day, it wasn't like that. In Mark's day, there was only one other place where the Spirit of God was likened to a dove, and that was found in something called the Targums, which were the Aramaic translation of the Hebrew scriptures that Jews in Mark's day read every synagogue. Uh, In Mark's day, the primary language they spoke was Aramaic, so they translated the Hebrew Bible from Hebrew to Aramaic. Uh, And in the creation account, specifically Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, um, in the Hebrew it says that the the Spirit hovered over the face of the waters. And the Hebrew word there for hovered literally means to flutter. And so when rabbis in Mark's day took that verse and translated it from Hebrew into Aramaic, this is exactly what they wrote. It says, and the earth was without form and empty, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God fluttered above the face of the waters like a dove, and God spoke, let there be light. 
So I just want you to notice something here because, again, this is the first thing the original readers of this gospel account would have thought of. Uh, Back in Genesis, there are three parties active in the creation of the world. That's God, God's word through which he creates, and then God's spirit fluttering like a dove over water. Uh, Here in Mark's account, you see the same thing. You have God the Father, you have Jesus, who the Bible refers to as the word made flesh, and then finally you have the spirit, once again, fluttering like a dove over water. And so what Mark's doing here is he's deliberately pointing back to creation, uh, to the very beginning of history, uh, and he's making the point that just as the original creation of the world was a project of the triune God, so the recreation of the world is also. But what Mark gives us that you don't find in Genesis, and and this is kind of like the point of of why I'm bringing all this up, Mark is actually giving us a behind-the-scenes look at how the members of the Trinity relate to one another. And what you're seeing in the verses that I read uh, on the front end of our time is that the, the Father is speaking words of love over the Son. The Son is preparing to do the will of the Father, and the Spirit is, is sort of clothing and covering Jesus with power. The point is, all of the members of the Trinity are, are pointing to and loving and adoring and giving attention to, glorifying and honoring the other members of the Trinity. What Mark is saying is, this is not only who God is at the time of, of Jesus' ministry, this is who God has always been. Now, to unpack this idea and why it's so important, I'm going to do what I always do, which is read quotes of people who are smarter than I am. So I'm going to share uh, the thoughts of C.S. Lewis and a theologian named Cornelius Plantinga with you, because they, they do a great job of showing us why this is so relevant to who we are and how we live today. <clears throat> Lewis said, in Christianity, God is not an impersonal thing or a static thing. He's not even just one person but a dynamic pulsating activity, a drama, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. From there, we'll go to Cornelius Plantinga, picking up this idea. He says, see, the Bible says the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit glorify one another. That means that persons, the persons within God exact, commune with, and defer to one another. Each harbors the other at the center of his being. In constant movement of overture and acceptance, each person envelops and encircles the others. God's interior light, therefore, therefore overflows with self-giving love for others. And then once more back to Lewis, who asks the question that if I were you, I'd be asking now. What does it all matter? He says, it matters more than anything else in the world. For the whole dance or drama or pattern of this three-persona life is to be played out in each of us. They are the great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. And here's how he closes it down. He says, there is no other way to the happiness for which we have been made. Lewis understood why it, it mattered. What he's saying there is that if we, if you and I have any desire to live a life of fulfillment, to live a life of purpose, uh, or in his words, to experience the happiness for which we have made, then what we must first do is understand the, the, the nature of the life of God whose image we bear. 
And, uh, you know, it was strange to me when I first read uh, that quote, and, and maybe it sounds strange to you that Lewis described the dynamics of the three persons of the Trinity as a dance, but the more that you think about it, the more sense it makes. Because what, what you have when, when, when you're looking at a dance, a dance is fundamentally, it's at least two people who are voluntarily moving around each other. <clears throat> and when you understand it that way, uh, selfishness is the exact opposite of that. To be selfish essentially, uh, essentially is, to, is to stand still. Uh, it's to stand still relationally, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, to stand still, refusing to move for anything or anyone, and instead to demand that everything revolves around me. And if you just you know, kind of paint that image in your mind, if you put 30 people on a dance floor and they all operated that way, it would be a pretty miserable party. And basically the Bible is saying that's the problem with mankind. That ever since Genesis chapter 3, there's this deep-seated desire in every human heart that wants to be the center, that wants to stand still and demand that everything and everyone else revolve around me. But the point is, what we see in the persons of the Trinity is exactly the opposite of that. Instead of self-centeredness, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are characterized in their very essence by self-giving love. So just to kind of put a period at the end of this, and then we'll move on. At the risk of being redundant, let me just leave you with this. That what you're looking at here, at the inaugural moment of Jesus' ministry, uh, is that the Father is speaking words of love over the Son. The Spirit is clothing the Son in power. And from this moment on, Jesus is going to repeatedly remind people he's here not to do his own will, but the will of the Father who sent him. And if you fast forward to the end of his ministry, he's, he tells his disciples he's going to return to heaven. He's going to go away, but he's going to go away so that he can send the Spirit, and it's better that he go away so the Spirit can arrive. The point is, when you look at who God is and how God operates within himself, every member of the Trinity is about every other member of the Trinity. When you ask the question, what was God doing before we got here, this is the answer. He was perfectly embodying self-giving love within himself for all eternity. All right, so if, if that's the, the, the nature of the life of God, if that's the essence of who he is, then the second question to be asked is, what are the implications of this for us? If it's true that this God that we're talking about is not only the author of reality, but he designed you and I in his image what does that mean for our lives? And of course, we could spend the rest of our lives talking about that, but I just want to offer you one answer to that question. And who knows, maybe it's the most important answer. I thought it was important enough to make it the one answer. You'll be the judge by the time we get through this, I guess. <clears throat> if this God that we're talking about, if he has designed us in, our, in, in his image, what this means, and there's a lot of different ways to say this, but what this means is that love relationships are what our lives are fundamentally about. They are the reason for which we exist. This is a theme that you see all through the Bible. So for instance, in, in Luke chapter 10, a law expert approaches Jesus and asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, what that question, what he was really asking is, Jesus, what does it mean for me to live in a way that is congruent with my design? It's not a lot different than saying, what is the purpose of my life? And to answer that question, Jesus really boiled it down to, to love, is what he said. He said, it's about loving the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. At the end of Jesus' ministry, in the upper room discourse, just before he went to the cross, he had a, a, you know, basically a heart-to-heart -heart with his disciples, and he said, um, a new command I give to you, love one another. 
which I imagine had the disciples scratching their heads because that was not a new-sounding command, but then Jesus explained what was new about this. He said, even as I have loved you, love one another. And, and just to make the point clear, after that, Jesus said, by this, all people will know you are my disciples. For whatever reason, as time's gone on, it's only become more and more amazing to me that, that Jesus Christ, the, he, he summarized what discipleship to him is, what it's evidenced by, down to just one thing. It could not be more simple. Jesus said, by this, people will know you belong to me, you follow me, you've been transformed by me, that you have love for one another. If you've ever attended a wedding, chances are you probably heard Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 13 that talk about love personified. And at the end of that, very famously, we read that in the end, there's going to be faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Jonathan Edwards wrote an entire sermon on just those words called Heaven is a World of Love, and it's not an easy read, but what he, he, he makes the point theologically that what God is doing with all of human history is he's moving us toward love. The reason that he's doing that is because as John himself wrote as an old man, the epistle now known as 1 John, that God himself is love. Now, if, just as a side note here, I was telling the 9 a.m., and I know this sounds strange, but... It's, it's, it's ideas like this that constitute why, here it is, I actually believe the Bible. <laughs> I'm sure, you know, wild thing for a Christian pastor to say. But when I was putting this teaching together, I was talking to Katie about it. Even if I was not raised in Christianity, I really believe that if I, if I got a hold of the Bible in my 30s and I just started to read it and think through it and, and, and let it be the lens through which I saw the world, I really do believe that I would become a Christian at any point in my life if I actually gave it the time and attention that it warrants. Not because it moves me emotionally, not because I'm brought to tears every time I open it, but simply because the Bible better explains what I see in the world and what I sense in myself than anything else I've ever heard or read. So, so let me just ask you, why, why is it? Because it's a well-documented thing that, that and, and, you know, it's the, it's the cliche, that, that on your deathbed, Nobody wishes they would have spent more time in the office. Nobody thinks about the projects or, or the tasks or none of that. We just, the only thing that matters to us in the, in the wake of our own mortality is the relationships we did or didn't have, the love that we did or didn't give and receive. And it begs the question, why is that? Why is it that, that uh, you know, both religious and secular philosophers and psychologists and, and sociologists, why is it that it just seems to be the case over and over again that the main thing that gives human existence meaning is love, that the main thing that causes human existence pain is the absence of love? Why is it that the stories of people who have forgotten this but then go on to remember it tend to be the most moving stories, like, you know, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol? Why is it that we love to see Ebenezer Scrooge finally get what life is all about at the end? And when I read the Bible, I find the best answer to that question compared to any other religion, belief system, philosophy, man-made school of thought. It's because we are people created in the image of, of a God who's made up of three persons who have been giving each other love in an eternity before we even got here. Now, is, as simple as this, this idea might sound, and I don't even think that people outside the church would really argue with this, it's important to talk about because it flies in the face of so much of, of what our culture is now really based on and what we almost consider to just be intuitive to us. And to explain what I mean there, um, I want to walk you through the way the army has had to change its slogan over the past 100 years. How the heck do you get from point A to point B? I'll, I'll walk you through this in just a moment. I know this is going to hit home 
especially for the military couples that call this church home. And this is, by the way, just so that I'm being totally clear here, this is not a reflection on the military. This is a reflection on us as a society. <clears throat> when I was thinking through this idea this week, I decided to Google uh, how the slogan of the United States Army has evolved over the past century, because that's a perfectly normal use of the internet. But what I found was eye-opening. If you think like me, this will be very interesting to you. I'm guessing that everybody listening to this remembers those posters, uh, those I want you posters, with Uncle Sam looking you in the eye and sticking a finger in your chest. That was the, the Army slogan during the First World War, and it was a highly effective slogan. Uh, before I move on, just consider the psychology of that messaging for a moment. Uh, the, the idea behind the I want you slogan is this idea, it's basically telling somebody, I want you to sacrifice the goals, the plans, the dreams, the wants, the needs that you had for your life for the sake of those around you. And it was highly effective in its day. But as culture began to change, I'm guessing some people with marketing degrees realized that no longer appealed to people. And so, in 1980, the Army had to change its slogan to, some of you are going to know this already, Be All You Can Be. And again, I would ask you to consider for a moment how dramatic of a shift that represents in the way that we thought as a society. Because what, the fact that they had to change that slogan to be all you can be proves that at least in that cultural moment in 1980, the question that, that we were fundamentally asking as a society was no longer what's required of me, it's what's in it for me. In other words, where before it was, it was reason enough, if other people needed me, I would go and serve, but now the primary thought that people were being almost trained to think according to in society was, what do I get out of this? And, and so the idea is, well, I guess if, if, if signing up for the military, signing up for, uh, to serve helps me self-actualize and become who I can be and get to where I want to go in life, then, then it's a valuable means to an end. We just didn't think like that before that. And in continuing on, wrap your head around this, in 2001, the slogan became, although it didn't stay here for very long, Army of One, which just goes to show how individualistic we have become as a society. And the point, like I said on the front end, uh, is, is the reason marketers had to change that, that slogan is because uh, we have progressively shifted as a society in the way that we think. And the way that we think today is, is and, and again, it's, it's almost... It's just intuitive to us. It doesn't even seem weird to us. It's just a given in the books that we read, the celebrities we idolize, the songs that we sing. It's this idea that if relationships get me where I need to go, then fine. If relationships are useful to me, then fine. If relationships help me feel good about myself, then fine. At the very least, if they don't cost me anything, they're fine. But the moment relationships get in the way of my plans and my goals and my dreams for my life, then they're done away with. And you see this at every level of society, <clears throat> that people cut and run on their marriages, they cut and run on their kids, they cut and run on their friends, they cut and run on churches because it's just the way that we think. But my, the reason that I'm walking us through this is simply to make the point that in the face of that, in the face of how we so naturally and intuitively think as a society now, what the Bible's telling you and I, when it tells us that we have been made in the image of a tri-personal God, a God made up of three persons who have been giving self-giving love to each other in an eternity past, what the Bible's saying is that relationships are not a means to an end. They are the reason we exist. And what that means for you and I is that 
If we, if we put any of our goals or our desires or our plans for our life uh, above forming uh, deep and meaningful relationships, whether it's friendships, whether it's our marriages, our families, you know, whether it's, it's deep involvement in a community of Jesus followers who are dedicated to walking out their faith together, to the degree that we allow any of our goals for our life to snuff relationships out, the formation of those relationships, what's eventually going to happen, and, and I could pull so many quotes that speak to this, is that we will make a mess of our lives. And the reason for that, the reason for that low-grade sense that, that, that something's off, that we're missing something, that we've, we've missed something that we were made for, according to the Bible, is what happens is we have, we have ignored the nature of the God whose image we bear. Now, all this sounds very idealistic and naive, but I thought it was worth saying in the midst of this that the cost of forming the relationships that the Bible says we're made for is, is a steep one. The cost of forming these relationships is essentially the life that we would have otherwise been able to live had we simply put ourselves first. And speaking personally, I cannot think of a movie that drives this idea home in a way that's more meaningful to me than the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah, got some, got some kindred spirits in the house. Um, several years ago, I've, well, for several years, I've been looking for a way to, to fit old George Bailey into a sermon illustration. Here we are. <clears throat> several years ago, uh, Katie and I started this tradition where every Christmas Eve, after we put the kids in bed, we watch It's a Wonderful Life. And uh, I actually, I'm a little bit legalistic with it. I will not allow myself to watch that movie at any other time during the year because I want to preserve the effect that it has on me. And uh, a little bit about me. Every time I watch it, including this year, as I approach the end, I'm always worried, oh, man, did I get used to it? And then I sob uncontrollably again, and I think, oh, good, it it still has an effect on me. So all through the movie, uh, George Bailey, the main character, uh, he has all these these goals, these these dreams, these, these aspirations for his life, and he wants to get out of his small town and see the world and take it all in and continue his education and become this great architect and build these things, these buildings, these monuments that, that really matter and have significance so that he can feel like he matters and has significance. And his, his character is really, um, he represents something that I think, if, if we're willing to be honest, we can all see in ourselves and identify with, which is this deep need that we have to break out of our small little lives and go see the beauty and the excitement and the adventure that's out there and, and do, do something meaningful with our time so that we can feel like we matter, like we have worth as people. And all through the movie, he works this, this job that he basically hates and finds no purpose in. He sort of inherited it from his father, and, and it provides a viable service to the community, but he, he wants nothing to do with it. And so the whole time, he's scraping together pennies so that he can go out and do what he really wants to do. And at several points in the movie, he finally gets the chance to go and do that. He finally gets the chance to break out of this small little life and put this community in the rear view. But each time he's presented with the chance, his community needs something from him. And so he's presented with this choice that, you know, I think we're all presented with numerous times in our lives, which is, is he going to live the life that he's lived for, that he plans to live for himself, or is he going to sacrifice the life that he planned for himself for the sake of of those around him, and each time he, he opts for the latter, and he sacrifices this, this big, beautiful life he had, and he lays down his life for his community, and it, it basically, he, it, it brings him to this point of, of crisis. 
But when I was looking at the, um, you know, the original reception of the movie, I was Googling it and the lessons that, and, and, you know, things that people have pulled from it. Something that I found really was curious to me is uh, it was actually poorly received in its day. I think it, was, I think it was put out in 1941, but I found that, like a lot of the classics, It's a Wonderful Life was, was initially, it was very poorly received, but it was the reason why that was so curious to me. People dismissed it as being too naive. And I could not disagree with that anymore because to me, it is the mo it's one of the most realistic movies I've ever watched. Here's what I mean. If, if, if It's a Wonderful Life was a modern Disney movie, here's what would have happened. George Bailey would have felt all the pressure of the wants and the needs and the demands of his community. And the point of the, of the movie would, have, would be him getting to the point where he realizes he doesn't owe them anything. He actually owes it to himself to go and live the life that he's planned for himself. He would self-actualize. He would go out and find a super fulfilling life and he'd be the hero in our super individualistic society. If, if, if it wasn't that explicit, then at least what would happen is he would make a bunch of sacrifices for people on the front end of the movie, but then at the end of it, he would get to go and do what he really wanted to do. So it'd be the tale of a person who gets to have his cake and eat it too. But what I love about the movie is it refuses to do that. It refuses to take the easy way out. Because if you watch the movie start to finish, you'll, you'll realize when you get to the end, George Bailey is living in a house that he can't afford to make the necessary repairs on. He can't afford to heat it properly. The neighbor's got a way nicer car than him. And he never gets to go and see the world like he so desperately wanted to as a younger man. He never gets to complete his education. He never gets to build the things that he really wanted to build because that ship sailed. It sailed because there is an actual price to be paid for choosing to live your life for someone other than yourself. But at the end of the movie, if you continue watching, he gets the chance to see what his community would have been like had he not been a part of it, and therefore the difference that he made in all of the lives of the people who he laid his life down for, and then in the final scene, all the people that he laid his life down for wind up having the opportunity to come through for him. And, and literally, as he's reading this note at the end, he begins to realize what actually is, I think, the main point of the movie, which is that a life lived for others, a life marked by self-giving love is its own reward. If, if I can hear it, I know this is a little on the nose. That is the definition of a wonderful life. And that's exactly uh, what the Bible's trying to get us to understand, that the meaning of our lives as people made in the image of this God is to live these lives modeled after and fueled by the self-giving love of the God in whose image we've been made. Now, I could leave us here, and I guess the application would be try to be a little bit more like George Bailey this week, but the Bible also affirms that the human heart can't change by human effort alone. And so ultimately, the only way that we're going to embody the self-giving love that we are made to embody is if we experience and are transformed by that love ourselves. And so essentially what we need is we need access into this relationship that the Godhead has had within himself for all eternity. And that, in essence, is what Jesus has come to make available to us. You see this in the final verses of this passage. It'll be the final verses we read this morning. We're... Um, We're nearing the end of our time together, so just hang with me. <clears throat> In verses 12 and 13, it says, Immediately the, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels began to serve him. 
So I mentioned at, at uh, the beginning of our time together that Mark is drawing a parallel between this account and the creation account in Genesis, and these verses only drive that point home further because think about it. In, in, in the creation account in Genesis, you have the three persons of God creating the world, and then the very next thing that happens in Genesis 3 is Satan shows up, and Adam experiences this temptation that, as the rest of the Bible shows, everything hinged on. And again, it's the same thing here. Because here at the very beginning of the public ministry of Jesus, which we've said is really the beginning of the recreation of the world, it's the same thing. You have the, this picture of the three persons of God, and then immediately after that, Satan shows up, and Jesus uh, experiences temptation. Now, you continue reading through Mark's gospel account, and it's obvious Jesus' trials and temptations were not confined to this 40-day period in the wilderness. He went on to go toe-to-toe with the forces of darkness all throughout his ministry. But the place where that really, be- really came to a head, and, and what uh, many theologians and commentators have called the hour of Jesus' greatest testing, ironically enough, also took place in a garden called Gethsemane. It's for this reason, among many, that the New Testament refers to Jesus as the second Adam. And when you zoom out and compare the two, you can't help but notice the beauty of the picture that the Bible's painting for us because for both Adam and Jesus, their tests took place in the garden. For both Adam and Jesus, their tests really revolved around a tree. For Adam, it was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For Jesus, his tree was a cross. To be hanged on a cross was to be hanged on a tree, people said. But what's so important for us to understand if we're really going to be moved and changed by that is to see not just the similarities but the differences between Jesus and Adam. Because when God came to Adam in his garden, what God essentially said to Adam was, Adam, if you obey me about your tree, you will live. Adam failed his test, and so we all die. But when God came to Jesus in his garden, what God essentially was saying was, Jesus, if you obey me about your tree, you will die. Jesus passed his test. And now, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, that as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. We've arrived at the end of our time together, so I'm going to call the worship team up, and I'll close today. I just want to offer you a question. You know, it's fine to talk about the biblical imagery here and the symmetry and, you know, how it all makes sense. But the question is, why did Jesus do all of this? What did Jesus hope to gain from all of this? And people have answered that question in different ways. You know, a lot of people could say, well, Jesus was obedient to the will of God, even to the cross, because he wanted the love and the approval and the acceptance and glory from the Father. But like we talked about in the beginning of our time together, Jesus already had that in an infinite supply, in an infinite way before he came down here. He actually had to set all of that aside in coming down here, and so that can't be it. And the more that you zoom out from it, the more the answer becomes clear. And the author of Hebrews even tells us that there's exactly one, Jesus, one thing There's exactly one thing that Jesus did not have before the cross that he could only get through the cross. And the answer to that is you and me. The author of Hebrews says, For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. 
What that means is that through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus is essentially inviting you and I into the relationship that he enjoyed in an eternity past with the Father and the Spirit, the relationship that you and I were made for, the relationship without which we will perpetually remain incomplete. And what was happening to him on the cross is he was being forsaken by God. It's the one time in Jesus' ministry he did not refer to God as Father, but simply, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment, Jesus was being kicked out of that relationship. He was experiencing the pain of the severing of that relationship so that you and I could be brought in. No matter what way you look at it, that is the ultimate act of self-giving love in history. And the more that we see that for what it is, the more that we personalize that, the more that we drive that into our hearts and make it the foundation of our lives, what happens, biblically speaking, is the life of God enters into and begins to heal and to reshape and to renew and to transform our lives. And as that happens, we grow in the ability to stop demanding that we be the center around which everything revolves And we become freer and freer to live as we were designed to live, as people that embody the self-giving love that saved us and reflect that love, not only back to the God who saved us, but to the people that he places in our lives. That is the meaning of life. So if anybody ever asks you, just tell them that. (laughs) That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for a love without which we would be completely lost. Thank you that you loved us too much to leave us to our own devices. Thank you that Jesus experienced what we deserve to experience so we can experience what he did deserve to experience. God, thank you for for welcoming us into a relationship with you, a relationship that can heal us, that can transform us, that can renew us, in ways that we would never believe possible. Please help us to be a community of people that are changed all throughout our lives by the love that you have for us, the love that you've poured out for us in Jesus. Please help us to reflect that love back to you no matter what you walk us through and to reflect it to the people that you've placed in our lives. For your glory and our joy, in the name of Jesus, we ask these things.